of the text um, that we have read, and I'm going to be some time in getting to it. I hope you'll uh, bear with me. And actually, I'm somewhat changing the subject from that which was printed in the program, Transcendence and Imminence. Um, I had in mind to preach this evening a sermon illustrating the biblical dialectic we were talking about last night in the matter of divine transcendence on the one hand and divine imminence on the other. The divine condescension and nearness on the one hand and the divine majesty on the other. I was going to elaborate on the one hand the terrible majesty of the Lord as that set forth in Holy Scripture and confirmed in many ways in the world that God has made. Think, for example, of the pistol star that the Hubble telescope now brings us evidence of, but one of the millions upon millions of stars in our own galaxy, which is itself but one of millions of galaxies. The nearest star to us, to our own star, being so far away that it would take 100,000 years to reach at the speed at which space probes travel today. Stop and ponder that because the entirety of recorded human history takes us back only about 10,000 years. We would have gone a tenth of the the, um, distance to the pistol star. The pistol star, they tell us now from the evidence of the Hubble telescope, is 10 million times brighter than our own sun. Or take one of these variable stars we're now hearing about. Stars that pulse in size. One of them I was reading about recently, at its smallest, would fill up our solar system out to Mars and the orbit of Mars, and at its largest, out to Neptune size and power that we can compute numbers that we can measure but which none of us really understands at all we let these numbers trip off our tongue and we don't have the foggiest idea what we're talking about these things beggar our imagination Calvin says somewhere he wished every Christian would be an astronomer for the sense he would have of the greatness of God and yet this is the tiniest part of our universe which God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ called into being merely by uttering a word we don't know what it means to say there are billions and billions of stars separated from one another by distances so vast that we cannot begin to comprehend them and yet God calls every one of those stars by name This God whom we worship, who inhabits eternity, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man can see or has seen, whose servants are flames of fire, whose angels are winds. This God whom we could not stand before, whose presence is first and foremost a terror to anyone and everyone who encounters it. This God is our Heavenly Father. Or consider the divine holiness. Another word which we throw around but hardly understand like a hundred thousand years of space travel or millions of light years this terrible holiness this otherness of purity and light that consumes the generality of men casts them all into hell forever 
whatever may be the eventual numbers and relationship between them and proportion within them, so long as there has been a world, by far the generality of men have gone to hell. We hardly ever think and hardly ever think deeply and at length about the fact that our God, the living God, the God we worship and love, has caused to be written somewhere in this cosmos over a portal through which souls pass into hell the legend all hope abandoned ye who enter here and through the march of the years there has been the tramp of generation after generation after generation of souls passing under that portal it is as if we've never noticed that for every mention in God's holy book, for every mention of God's grace or mercy, there are, by one calculation, three references to his wrath and his judgment. But then we think to ourselves, what has all of that to do with us? After all, we are his beloved children by faith in Christ. And then, for much of the time, we forget or think altogether too lightly that the worst of all of this teaching that is addressed to souls in God's holy scripture is addressed to those who are in the church. We're so sentimental, you and I, so prone to believe what we want to be true. And we so easily think that God is altogether like us. It is as if Jesus never warned us that he would reject and drive away from himself and from heaven many who called him Lord when they were in the world. Even many, so it was thought, who were his choice servants. Lord, did we not drive out demons in your name? Because for all their profession and for all that they were regarded as Christians and perhaps even particularly noteworthy Christians, they did not, in fact, do the will of his Father in heaven. Do you lie in bed at night and shudder to realize that there is that in your life many times over which would give Christ reason to say to you, Depart from me, I never knew you. That there is in your life many times over sufficient to number you with the five foolish virgins against whom the Lord shut the banquet door forever. Those virgins had lamps. They had oil. They wanted to see the bridegroom arrive and they were willing to go out at midnight to meet him. They even stayed up until midnight. All they lacked was the extra oil. And for that, God God's divine holiness consumed them and shut the door of heaven against them forever. And yet most of the time, you and I seem blithely indifferent to all of this warning and teaching in God's book. Think of so many statements like this. It would be better for a man to be thrown into the sea with a millstone around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. A bad text for a group of men charged with the responsibility of the lives and the obedience and the holiness of God's people. Well, think of Paul, who wrote what I have come to think is, in a way, the most startling text in the New Testament. If there was ever a man who had a right to take his salvation for granted, it was Paul. The Damascus Road, the vision whether in the body or not, he was not sure of the third heaven. He saw things 
so magnificent and so life transforming he wasn't allowed to tell others what he had seen when he came back to his senses if there was ever a man who could at least set aside the question of whether he himself were saved and get on with the business of saving others it was the apostle Paul and yet he wrote I do not run like a man running aimlessly I do not fight like a man beating the air I beat my body I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others I myself might not be disqualified for the prize here's a man that's seen the holiness of God with his own eyes see how it solemnized him see with what fear he lived before God see how he trembled before the word of God and see how seriously he took the matter of his own salvation what then brothers of you and me Chrysostom was only taking seriously I think what the Bible says so emphatically when he wrote that he did not think that very many among the ministers of the Christian church would be saved what else should one think who reads it as a required of a steward that he be found faithful and to whom much is given much is required and not many of you should presume to be teachers my brothers because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly you wouldn't gather from the evangelical ministry today that many ministers are over much worried about that fact I'm not nearly so concerned as I know those words ought to make me why the angels of God who are before the Lord always and have been for thousands of years continue to be in thrall to that divine holiness if you or I Charles Simeon once observed were for the first time informed that the angels of God had six wings and were asked what do you suppose they do with those wings we would naturally reply why they fly with them in the service of the Lord their God what else do you suppose they do with their wings but of course we'd be wrong we wouldn't imagine that these angels who always live before the glory of God and the face of God and are familiar with the divine glory would still use two of the wings to cover their faces as unworthy to look upon God and two of their wings to cover their feet as unworthy to stand before him or serve him and only use two of them to fly so as to do his bidding this is the glory and the majesty and the transcendence and the holiness and the otherness of God and all the ways in which God is high and lifted up could be elaborated at great length and worrying length from God's word and from nature and from history and then I intended to sit over against that on the other hand that breathtaking that uh, so set over against that breathtaking vision of the divine glory and transcendence the Lord's imminence his nearness the great stoop he makes to come down and be amongst us and care for us and consider us these tiny specks in the vast uh, universe he has created the thousands and thousands of thoughts that he has thought about you and about me according to Psalm 139 the care he's taken to number the hairs on your head nobody cares exactly how many hairs you have on your head the whole point of the Lord's remark is that God's concern extends to the supremely trivial to love us to the incarnation the suffering the death the humiliation of his own son to prepare for us to prepare for us what a remarkable 
idea that is to prepare for us a place of endless joy with him in heaven to bear with us meantime our devilish ingratitude and thoughtlessness of him our vanity which even divine grace has done precious little to destroy in our hearts to continue to work his grace into our lives in defiance of our pathetically unresponsive hearts to put Samson of all people in the hall of heroes of faith there is a case of taking very little for a lot in his tender kindness as our father making all our wants his care in all of our afflictions he was afflicted too and on and on it goes and the power of these truths the force of them comes precisely from the juxtaposition of each one with the other it's the God of infinite power and might who tenderly pities us as a father his children and it's the God of tenderest mercy and deepest feeling and truest sympathy and most generous spirit who stands over the wheeling cosmos as an absolute ruler and threatens the world with infinite wrath but I wanted to elaborate that particular tension in a related but somewhat different direction as I thought more about it I thought this might be of more immediate interest and use to pastors to consider this other dimension we spoke yesterday of the strengths and dangers of the biblical pedagogy we're forced to face each doctrine in its dark simple straightforward meaning divine sovereignty for example in Romans chapter 9 with all the bark on no qualifications no mitigations no place to hide from the rule of the almighty and in other passages divine sovereignty seeming seemingly totally forgotten and only the freedom and the responsibility and the accountability of human beings as free agents set before us sovereignty is a very simple doctrine really little mystery little wonder until you put human freedom and responsibility side by side and suddenly it becomes the most mysterious and the grandest and the most divine doctrine in the world to embrace sovereignty without a similar commitment to responsibility is not to embrace sovereignty at all not to understand it at all not at least in its biblical form the danger of the dialectic and all of the Bible's teaching is dangerous all of its doctrines are dangerous they can all be so easily misunderstood and misused and misapplied the danger is one-sidedness a one-sidedness that denatures both Christian faith and life so I want to use another example of this dialectic this biblical pedagogy in which the truth is presented in terms of its polarities the extremes at the end of the continuum leaving us to manage the tension which is thus created it resembles and derives from the dialectic between divine transcendence and divine eminence but it's a different form of it and it serves it seems to me as a virtually perfect example of how essential it is to embrace both poles at the same time and with an equal tenacity else our faith and life will be malformed I want to consider with you the dialectic, dialectic of salvation by grace alone on the one hand and the judgment according to works on the other now I take it as something you would confess with all of your hearts as I do that we are sinners 
comprehensively, profoundly, disgustingly sinners. And that our only hope of salvation and of peace with God and of eternal life is that God should extend to us His favor, His peace, His righteousness, His acceptance, which we do not and can never remotely deserve. The Bible's message from beginning to end is that only God in Christ could sweep away a guilt as mountainous as ours, could deliver us from a bondage to evil as protracted as ours, and into which we had so willingly plunged ourselves. Over and over again, the Bible lays bare the character of salvation as an act, as a work, combining infinite mercy and infinite power. Because nothing else could raise up to holiness and heaven people so thoroughly undeserving and unattractive and uninterested in everything that is pleasing to God as we are. That's why we are treated repeatedly in the Bible to the salvation of murderers and rapists and liars and idolaters and invincible egotists. They are pictures, they are representatives of us all. And in biblical times, people were just as we are today, very hard-pressed to accept that verdict about themselves. In truth, we're all of those things, all of the time, little as we think of it or recognize it, and defensive as we are immediately when someone has the temerity to suggest that we may in some way be at fault, even in regard to those common faults that we accept as the ordinary run of life in the church and the world. When judged by the standards of a holy God who looks upon the heart, we're all of those things, profoundly, sickeningly, all the time. And the only reason we're not evil incarnate is because God in His mercy prevents us from being exposed to those forces, those powers, those temptations that would bring out of us what is within us all the time in every way. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved." And we who are Calvinists boast that we are the ones who have seen this with crystal clarity, though I detect in my own ministry that Calvinists tend to be just about as defensive as anybody else when they are accused of a minor fault. We contribute nothing to our salvation, it, it, to its plan, its execution, its application, nothing but the sin from which we are redeemed. And that sin, your sin and mine, really is great beyond our power to calculate. Some of you uh, today here will remember how the city of New York was terrorized for two years, 1976 and 1977, by the infamous serial killer, the son of Sam. During those terrible months, this man whose name was David Berkowitz murdered six young men, injured others, both men and women, and blinded one young man with a gunshot to the head. His modus operandi was what made catching him so difficult. He selected his victims entirely at random, walking in a street, sitting unsuspecting in a car. He would walk up and begin shooting at point-blank range. He gained even greater notoriety when he began writing to Jimmy Breslin, the famous New York Post columnist who had written extensively about the murders. It was to Breslin that he disclosed his name, the son of Sam. 
Sam happened to be the neighbor, the name of a neighbor whose dog had kept him up at nights with his barking. His letters to Breslin reminded criminologists of the terrible messages that Jack the Ripper had sent to officials in London a century before. When he was finally apprehended, he claimed insanity, but psychiatrists testified that he was faking it. He eventually pled guilty and was never tried. Those were the days when it was virtually impossible to execute anyone because of decisions that had been made by the U.S. Supreme Court, so he was sentenced to serve 365 years in prison. Now, I tell you this today because David Berkowitz is a professing and committed Christian. He works in the prison chapel, helping to disseminate gospel literature to the inmates. Indeed, he maintains correspondence with some PCA friends of mine, one of them an elder of a church in Nashville, Tennessee, who vouches for the quality of his profession of faith. I heard of his profession of faith for the first time uh, several years ago, maybe three years ago now, and was, was struck by that news, was encouraged to see it mentioned just a couple of weeks ago on a TV news magazine, at least indication that uh, he has followed through on his original commitment, at least uh, to this point. Now, I'm certainly incapable of judging the genuineness of any, any Christian profession. God alone can judge the heart. But we can't think that it's impossible for God to save a man such as David Berkowitz after he had done such terrible and evil things. We can't think that's impossible if we believe in the gospel of divine grace. We can't say, we can't think that God could save moderately evil people like us, but that he would be unable to save and unwilling to save a really evil man like David Berkowitz. But are you prepared for the storm of protest that you would bring down upon your head if you were to suggest in public that David Berkowitz, the infamous son of Sam, will spend eternity in heaven in the world of everlasting joy in the satisfaction of human life as human life was always meant to be lived and that forever, while many, if not most, of his victims will spend eternity in hell. Nothing so starkly, so unmistakably demonstrates the nature of sola gratia as something like that. But you see, that's our doctrine, and that's the confession of our hearts. We are murderers too, and we are liars and haters of other human beings. And we are indiscriminate and random in the evil that we spread everywhere we go. So there can't be any thought of our relative goodness, yours and mine. We can think that only if, like the world, we lower the bar so low that finally we can't help stumbling over the top of it. Even uh, the last devil in hell but one can say, I'm not as bad as he is. We were put into this world to love God with all our hearts, soul, strength, and mind, and to love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. And many of us who've been Christians in this room will admit, I hope all of us will admit, there hasn't been ten minutes in all of our existence when we've loved God with all our heart and soul and strength and mind. And will you please just put down on a piece of paper the name of that neighbor 
whom if I go to and ask, is there someone in your acquaintance who loves you more than he loves himself? He'll give you, give me your name. We were put in the world to love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves, and we don't, we can't name a single neighbor of whom that is true. No truer words were ever spoken than these by the saintly Bishop William Beveridge. I cannot pray, but I sin. I cannot hear or preach a sermon, but I sin. I cannot give an alms or receive the sacrament, but I sin. I cannot so much as confess my sins, but my confessions are still aggravations of them. My repentance needs to be repented of. My tears want washing, and the very washing of my tears needs still to be washed over again with the blood of my Redeemer. So, there can be no thought of our righteousness, even in respect to what we perceive to be our relative goodness over against other human beings. If you take a 25-watt bulb and a 75-watt bulb and compare them, you will notice some difference, and you may think that difference is significant if you're planning to read a book or something. But if you hold those two light bulbs up against the sun... The difference between them is absolutely annihilated. There is no difference. None at all. And so it is with us. There may be distinctions between us morally, even distinctions of some significance relative to the cultural, political, social life of mankind. But it's all appallingly minor and insignificant when compared to the difference between us, all of us together as sinners, and the fiery furnace of the divine wrath. Besides, a truly gracious heart always thinks its own sins worst of all. Like Paul, we consider ourselves the chief of sinners, and we have to. We have to. It's right that we should, because brotherly love will compel us to find excuses and extenuations and reasons for everybody else's sins. Only for our own sins are there no excuses whatsoever. Our hearts will go out to David Berkowitz, monstrous as his evil was and guilty as he was for it, when we learned that he'd been born out of wedlock, quickly put up for adoption, that he was shown almost no affection by his adoptive parents, and was abandoned by them when they moved to Florida when he was still a young teenager, left to live by himself on the streets of New York City. There were reasons why his life turned out as it did. Extenuations in his case. Only for our own sins are there no reasons and no extenuations whatsoever. No apology. So my sin has to be the worst. And so it's not finally as surprising that David Berkowitz should someday be in heaven as it is that I should find myself there someday. And as much as grace is the beginning of our salvation, so it is the continuation and the completion of it. He who began a good work in us continues it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so it must be. However great a beginning may have been made, we would have squandered it in hours had it not been for the grace of God. And not a one of us has the remotest idea of what vast quantities of divine grace we consume every single day we live in this world. That's one pole of the continuum of biblical truth regarding the judgment of our lives. 
but it's only one pole. Our sin so great only divine mercy could cover it and everything about our salvation, every part, every aspect, God's free gift to us in defiance of our ill desert. But now I want you to feel the wrench when I set beside it the other pole that lies on this same continuum of biblical truth. For there is another pole, and it's the pole that Paul addresses in the text we read, the judgment of our lives according to what we have done, whether good or bad. The measurement of our lives according to how we have lived. Let me put the point plainly. Paul considered with a seriousness, few Christians share today the fact that his life and his service of Christ was one day going to be brought to an account. He was going to have to answer for the way in which he served the Lord or the way in which he failed to serve the Lord. He was going to have to give an account of his failures. He was going to get to receive a reward for his successes. And that prospect motivated him in gospel work, compelled him onward in the faithful discharge of his duty, even when that duty was exquisitely painful and took a great deal out of him. He made it his goal to please the Lord and devote himself to the gospel's advance because he knew the day was coming sooner than anyone thinks when he was going to have to give an account of his life and the service that he had rendered to God. And God would be then, as he always is, an all-knowing judge. In regard to every part of the Christian life that he lived, he knew a record was being kept of the things he did right and the things he did wrong. His obedience and his disobedience. A record that someday was going to be opened. At times when he was tempted to do something other than his duty as a Christian and as a Christian minister. He had the same experience as the church father Jerome who wrote, Whether I eat or drink or whatever I do, I think I still hear the sound of these words in my ear, Arise, you dead, and come to judgment. This passage in 2 Corinthians 5 is by no means the only one in which Paul speaks of himself as living under the shadow of this approaching accounting. Woe is me if I preach not the gospel, he said in another place. But this part of the Bible's teaching is not one that is considered much at all. In fact, I think it's considered almost not at all in the evangelical church today. And to be honest, it's a part of the Bible's teaching that we don't find nearly as congenial as other parts. We love to hear about our forgiveness and God's love as we ought. We love to hear that there is therefore now no condemnation to the man who is in Christ Jesus as well we should. But we're less enthusiastic about the idea that still, forgiven though we may be, we have to give an account of our stewardship and the different measures of reward will be dispensed in heaven according to the faithfulness of a Christian's life in this world. If the truth be told, we wish Paul had never written, as he did in Romans 14.12, that each of us must give an account of himself to God. We wish we didn't have to read, as we do in Revelation 14.13, that our deeds will follow us to heaven. And in 2012, that the dead will be judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. It rocks us back on our heels to have Christ first commend the faith and love of the Christians in Thyatira and then tell them, I will repay you according to your deeds. 
ministers and elders particularly shudder to hear that to a special degree as we read in Hebrews 13:17 they are men who must give an account and we're all stunned to read our Savior saying I tell you that men will have to give an account of on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken for by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned don't think careless word by the way in that in that uh, statement of the Savior's means um, a joke or something of that sort uh, idle words in the Bible are words that um, amount to promises we made but didn't keep obligations we undertook to which we swore ourselves but then we did not fulfill words that said in effect we would be up and going when we never went words we speak by the way every time, every time we're in God's house every time we are with the saints in worship and commit ourselves with all this solemnity whether musically or in prayer or in the confession of our faith or in the amen we give to a sermon over and again in the scenes of the last judgment painted for us in the Bible the saved are separated from the lost by reason of the fidelity of their lives and their living those who have done good will rise to live those who have done evil will rise to be condemned as reformed evangelicals we need to admit to ourselves that we would never ever have written the accounts of the last judgment the way the biblical writers wrote them had we been there we would have suggested in ever so respectful tones that the Lord or the Apostle Paul might be wiser if they didn't give comfort to the enemies of free grace and made more of faith in Christ as the only truly significant factor in the judgment of men Lord I mean I know you're all wise but do you really want to put it that way think of what in the future Roman Catholics are going to do with that text or whatever Paul I'm sure you don't mean to suggest that divine judgment is according to works you of all people so wouldn't it be better to write it differently but there's more much as we might not have thought it having learned that our guilt was swept away by the grace of God and that we have been made righteous only by the imputation of the righteousness of another God the Son the Lord Jesus Christ our Redeemer it's the doctrine of Holy Scripture that there will be different measures or grades of reward in heaven for the saints just as there will be different measures of punishment for the wicked in hell one of the most encouraging doctrines in the Bible in my judgment and this doctrine is based on the Bible's own plain speaking one man will rule five cities another ten just as one man will be beaten with many stripes and another with few stripes Paul certainly thought that the prospect of appearing before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of his life to have his life examined and measured was a major force in his daily living he knew that a judgment that considered the faithfulness of a Christian's life did not in any way contradict a gospel of free grace and justification by faith alone however much it might produce a certain tension with it he knew that God being infinitely holy would take seriously the lives his children lived in the world and being infinitely just would make appropriate distinctions between them <coughs> Paul knew this and it galvanized him to action it set him to be the most careful steward 
of his days and nights. It made him a faithful, still more faithful worker in the kingdom of God. It made him patient in bearing his afflictions and generous in the consideration of his neighbor. It made him faithful in every Christian duty, quick to repent of his sins. And if we're wise, the same expectation of our own coming appearance before the judgment seat of Christ will have us up and doing for the kingdom's sake just as it did the great apostle to the Gentiles. Now, I read an article not long ago that argued that all of these statements in the Bible and the doctrine of justice and divine judgment that underlies them all, these statements to the effect that we'll be judged according to our works and the different measures of reward will be meted out to the saints depending upon how faithfully they have served the Lord in this world must be interpreted differently in fact he felt that to accept that doctrine would be to undermine free grace to reintroduce into the story of our salvation our own achievement and our own deserving in other words he was seeking to dissolve the biblical dialectic to relax the tension of truth that is characteristic of the Bible's pedagogy but his effort to silence those texts I thought myself spectacularly unconvincing. And there's a movement among Reformed Christians nowadays, a movement that its supporters see as a rediscovery of grace that finds the notion of judgment according to works uncongenial and argues, at least in some quarters, that it is unbiblical. These are people often who have struggled to feel accepted and loved. They've often had difficult childhoods and still have strained relationships with parents. They very much want to believe that the Lord's unconditional acceptance means precisely that they are no longer under any pressure to perform, to succeed, because success has been something that has eluded them every step of the way. They love to hear, as they should, as, though, as we all should, that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus and that it is not we who live, but Christ who lives in us. But they feel that all of that is diminished somehow, if not actually taken away. If we then also say that our works follow us to heaven and we have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of the deeds done in the body, whether good or evil. We all, as we said at the beginning, tend to like some parts of the Bible more than others. There are many Christians who are glad for their forgiveness. They really are, to be sure. They are glad for it. But they're not nearly so animated in their Christian life by the thought of the forgiveness of their sins as they are by the challenge of some summons to be up and doing. And when they hear the exhortations of God's Word and the commandments of God's Word, they're rubbing their hands together and they're thinking this is what this is what the Christian life is all about, doing something significant for God. There are other Christians whose hearts sink every time the preacher passes from Romans 11 to Romans 12 or Ephesians 3 to Ephesians 4 or Colossians 2 to Colossians 3. It's amazing to me. I see it in myself and in others how our different spiritual states and conditions deafen us to some things that the Bible says and render us so sharp-sighted, so acute in our hearing of other things in the Bible. We see and hear what we want to see and hear, which is why it's so important 
for pastors to respect this biblical dialectic and to teach their people to see it in the Bible, to force on them the truth they are least happy to receive so that the truth they love is not corrupted and misshapen in their hearts and lives. I believe because the scripture teaches me that my salvation from beginning to end is the work and the gift and the achievement of God who loved me, God alone, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But I believe as well that my life will be judged and my place in heaven determined. What that means, I do not claim to know. That it is so, I cannot doubt. That that place will be determined by the measure of faithfulness that I have shown him while he gives me to live in this world. I don't claim to be able to resolve all the tension created between these two teachings in the Bible. It is certainly a striking juxtaposition of two truths. But then Chesterton said that was the point. A paradox is truth standing on its head to get attention. <laughs> and I don't have any difficulty believing that both things are so. I am a sinner, and I know I cannot save myself or even contribute to my salvation if salvation to any degree requires that I meet the standards of a God as holy as I know God to be. Or, even if it requires of me something so simple, which turns out to be the most appallingly difficult thing in all the world, namely, to live my life in living trust and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ, active and present with me as my Savior. And I can see very clearly how that is and must be true. But I can also, as a Christian, fully understand and appreciate that my Heavenly Father takes seriously the life I live before Him. He is not indifferent to whether I am obeying Him or disobeying Him. Like any faithful father, He cares how His children live. And I can see very clearly how the two of these doctrines together make for a Christian life such as that life I want with all my heart to live. Perfect humility before God and man in the awareness of my terrible need, my utter hopelessness in myself, the immensity of the debt I owe to divine grace on the one hand, and at the same time, perfect zeal in the performance of my duty as a servant of God in the demonstration of my love to him as his child and my obedience to him as his subject. When I'm thinking clearly, and when I have the interests of God abroad in my heart, I don't want one truth or the other. I want them both. I want a life that both together alone can create. I never want my reliance upon the grace of God to make me lazy or careless in my devotion to and service for God, but I never want my Christian service in the least degree to diminish my sense of absolute dependence upon the grace and mercy of God. It's far too easy to spend our lives, as one Christian man said he spent his, laboriously doing not much of anything. The prospect of giving an account will concentrate the mind and set us to doing things which our flesh may resist doing, but our spirit knows we are very much going to want to have done when we are standing before the Lord on the great day giving an account of our lives. <clears throat> 